Hello, friends, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Trial Advocacy Podcast, supporting survivors of human trafficking. My name is Summer Meenan, and I'm here with Taylor Bureau, your host for the podcast. Today, as we close the series of this podcast, we thought it would be helpful to give you a little background on ourselves, the organizations that we're representing, and this podcast more generally. We'll talk about how this podcast came to be and what we learned from it. So, Taylor, I think it's important to start off with the basics. If you don't mind, I, I probably will ask you one of the hardest questions first. Um, so do you remember when you first learned about human trafficking in the United States and your reaction to it? Yes. Awesome. And what a fantastic question to start with. <laughs> um, I do remember. And I'll say that the term human trafficking was presented to me long after I actually I guess, knew what human trafficking was without having a name attached to it. Um, So long story short, I had a pretty rocky youth. Um, I was homeless on and off. Uh, And when I was kind of an older youth, over 18 about, um, I did sex work and would trade sex for things that I needed. Um, I was lucky enough to not have to do that for a long period of time. Uh, I ended up finding security in my life with housing that was my own and took on various above the table and below the table jobs that include sex work. Um, But though the majority of my younger years, I'll I'll add that most of my relationships um, were kind of a product of sex work. Um, And I say this because some of my friends um, were trafficked, but they didn't call it that. None of us called it that. It wasn't in our vocabulary. Um, We didn't, we didn't associate with that. So, you know, being as close to sex work as we were, it really increased your likelihood of being exploited. And those lines of what is consensual and what's not consensual had been really blurred. Um, So anyway, but I first learned about human trafficking when I, when I lived it, lived close to it. Um, But what I was first told about human trafficking was when I worked with uh, homeless services at Capital City of Services uh, here in Tallahassee. And I remember people telling me, you know, what it was and referring to how it's not like taken because those folks, you know, they don't get snatched in the middle of the night and things like that. And uh, we had many trainings on it. And I also remember people saying people don't even know that they're being taken advantage of or that they're being trafficked, which makes it even harder to do human trafficking work, um, which I think is a half truth. Um, you know, a lot of us knew when we were being taken advantage of, but there was also a realization that the the system was also part of who took advantage of us. And so, you know, that, that's kind of hard to explain to people who haven't lived it. But I think about the young activist, um, Kenya Brooks, um, or Kasia Brooks, who said, y'all can't be both my savior and my oppressor. And there's just so many nuances to that. And for me, uh, through all my work with homeless youth, I try to center the individual who is harmed everything that I do and not necessarily the policies that govern or created some of that harm. So while I ran the Youth Homeless Center, I really expanded my understanding of what human trafficking was and learned alongside a lot of the people that we hear speak in this podcast uh, and really expanded the multifacetedness that is human trafficking. Uh, so that was kind of a long story about how I first heard of it, you know, double points. But what about you? When did you first, or do you remember when you first learned about human trafficking? Um, I do. Before I answer, I just want to say thank you for sharing um, 
I think that, you know, we've worked together a long time and I'm not even so sure that I knew all that about you. So I appreciate you sharing your experience with me and with others. Um, I first learned about human trafficking in college. And I always think back to the quote by William Wilberforce. Um, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. And that's really what learning human trafficking was for me. I It changed my life um, because I no longer had the luxury of ignorance. Um, I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, but I went to college at Texas Christian University where I studied English, political science, and criminal justice. And I remember that I chose this political science class just because it fit into my schedule, which was kind of busy because I was working. Um, and this was a night class, so it was just really convenient. And I heard really good things about the professor. So I told my roommate, I'm signing up for this human trafficking class. And she was like, wow, this is going to be really hard. Um, she was from Portland and she was trying to explain to me, you know, it's, it's rampant in Portland. And I was, I was shocked. I was shocked she knew about it. I was shocked that it would be rampant anywhere in the United States. Because at the time, I totally just saw human trafficking as sex trafficking. And truthfully, I understood it purely in light of the movie Taken. Um, at that time, I, I just was shocked. I imagined physical kidnapping and underground auctions. And I didn't realize um, not only was that view inaccurate to most sex trafficking in the United States, but you know, labor trafficking exists. And also that these things are happening everywhere. Um, all around us in the United States. So I, I took the class with Dr. Vanessa Boucher and it was shocking to say the least. Honestly, totally mind-blowing. And I would leave the class every night and talk to anyone who would listen to me for hours. Um, and the more I learned, the more I needed to be involved. And I was lucky that Professor Boucher was very hands-on. So during the class, we were able to participate in a reverse sting. We worked with law enforcement to um, have a ride-along. We attended RISE Court, um, which is a specialized court for vulnerable women um, with prostitution or human trafficking-related offenses, um, kind of similar to something that we talked about earlier in the podcast. But basically, it's designed as in a, with a rehabilitative mindset uh, setting goals and providing opportunities and means for these um, individuals to live a healthy life after experiencing that kind of trauma. So anyway, after that class, I knew I needed to do more. So I joined the International Justice Mission, IJM, and I also um, signed up to go to India with Dr. Boucher um, while she was working with a nonprofit to create a legal database in India. Um, so we, I was able to study trafficking and work with victims there which was another eye-opening experience because the type of trafficking there is just really different from what we see here. Um, so it's just another reminder that, you know, this is such a complex issue. But after that, I came back, was still looking for more. I worked at a rehabilitative nonprofit in the DFW area for a while. And I think all of that is a long-winded way of just saying my initial reaction was complete and total shock maybe even disbelief. And then my next reaction was, how can I turn this reaction into action? How can I make an impact in this? It, it was impactful to me and I wanted to impact the issue as much as it impacted my life. That's awesome. I, uh, I think about proximity to knowledge and like once you know something, 
that you'll change something. And that's not everybody's first reaction. So I love, you know, I think that the work I've seen you do, um, I'm glad that you you were shocked. I'm glad that it it drove you to wanting to to learn and do all of that you that you've done. And you know, I I want to talk a little about Pilk and, and talk about how you got involved with Pilk because um, that's not something that I originally talked about. But I, you know, that's kind of where I met you from is our how work how our work intersected from the homeless youth program that I worked with and your involvement in Pilk. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved? Yes, absolutely. Well. This passion, you know, that I found in college was part of my motivation for applying to law school. Um, but truthfully, after doing a lot of heavy and hard work in Texas, I kind of felt overwhelmed. Um, and I really just wanted nothing to do with this. I was like, okay, law school is hard enough. I don't really want the emotional way, the um, time commitment. I just wanted to, I wanted my ignorance back, to be honest. I, I didn't want to see tracking risks or be looking for it all around me. Um, and so I tried to let it go. But truthfully, one of the reasons that I chose FSU Law was because we have a human trafficking um, specific clinic. So the FSU College of Law operates the Public Interest Law Center, or POC. And within that center, we have a project called HELP, which stands for the Human Trafficking and Exploitation Law Project. So as I'm going through law school, trying to not be involved, I end up, I just, I miss being involved. I miss doing my part. And so I, I interviewed for the clinic um, and help is just, it's a huge resource for promoting anti-trafficking policy. And then also um, for working directly with child victims of human trafficking who need legal representation in the big area. Um, it's also just a wonderful resource for law students who are looking to gain experience. Um, I was a part of this clinic for even longer than we've been working on this project, which seems hard to believe. Um, but throughout that time, HELP provided me with a wide variety of experience to further my legal education and my advocacy skills. I was able to work directly with survivors of human trafficking as a student advocate. I was able to speak to the Florida Senate Appropriations Committee as part of HELP's public policy initiatives. Um, I worked on a draft petition to the Department of Homeland Security um, to ask them to enforce laws that prohibit the importation of goods produced with forced labor. And then now we're getting to work on this legal toolkit. And that's actually how you and I got connected, as you mentioned. So you were doing a little work with Pilk before you were involved with the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence. Um, could you talk to us about the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence and how um, getting involved previously matched up to this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm currently the Director of Strategic Initiatives with the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence. Uh, and for folks who don't know, FCASV is a statewide nonprofit organization. We are committed to the victims and survivors of sexual violence, which includes the secondary survivors like family and loved ones. Um, most people know FCSV through our work with supporting many of the sexual assault centers or the rape crisis centers across the state of Florida. Uh, we provide things like funding, sexual assault prevention support, training, technical assistance, advocacy, and really whatever else is needed so that survivors aren't alone as they unpack this trauma or navigate the various services that are going to support them uh, through the crisis. So after working with homeless youth at Capital City Youth Services, um, 
I got a really good glimpse of how poverty impacts the lives of, of young people in the systems. Um, and so how social services kind of inter intertwines with that. And a significant commonality was violence and especially sexual violence or exploitation that young people faced. Um, so the last few years working at that youth drop-in center, I thought a lot about harm caused uh, and harm experienced. And I remember so many young people who were assaulted and who either laid on, later went on to harm others through sexual assault or they continued to harm themselves. Um, and it made me think about the bigger picture, about how we as society turn to either punitive answers or restorative ones. Them. Um, and, you know, so I've only been with FCSV for about two years now, but I am so incredibly proud of, of not only the services we offer, offer, you know, the training of nurses who provide trauma-informed sexual assault examinations or pro bono legal assistance and advocacy for survivors. Um, but I'm also proud of how we make and reimagining what whole communities need to look like. Uh, and and could look like if there was no violence or exploitation. So thinking about community violence, familial violence, and state-sanctioned violence too. And I, you know, again, I'm just where I was heading, where I was heading aligned so great, noting that none of us have ever lived in a are all safe where there is no violence and where everyone has what they need. And I really love that FCSV is on that path of investing in what it takes to reimagine how to create a world where there is no violence and where we have what we want. So I think our missions uh, just kind of linked up. And naturally, when you when you want everyone to have what you need, a lot of times, especially as a social worker, you work backwards and say, well, who's preventing it? And so that's kind of how I got there. Um, and then... You came to me actually for this collaboration. And so that kind of led us to where we are. You want to talk a little about that? Yes. So we at Hilk had noticed just lack of resources in the legal field um, in this area specifically. I mean, we have great prosecutors, we have great judges, victim advocates, but a lot of time it's just a little bit of a disconnect between all of these parties coming together um, and also just being really educated on human trafficking specifically. You know, we're all trained in the law, but um, this is a little bit different and it's a little bit of a social issue in combination with the law. And, you know, there just, it was not connecting all of these dots together. So we thought we need to fill this gap. Um, and we wanted to create a toolkit in a really accessible form because we wanted to reach the most people involved in the legal process who might work on a human trafficking case or with a human trafficking victim. So we thought, what better way to do this than a podcast? You know, they're so accessible and, um, and really maybe a little less boring than some of the other toolkits that we often have. Um, so we researched for hours and hours and we had our expectations of what we thought we would hear from our experts. Um, but truthfully, I was just blown away at how, when, it, when we really started digging into this and we started doing these interviews, um, we all saw the same needs. We saw the same gaps. And that was really powerful to me. Um, maybe a bit of a wake up call. On, on one hand, it's 
so encouraging that the people who are really working in the thick of this understand the situation and understand the victim's needs so well. On the other hand, it's really hard to know that we are all seeing these gaps, but we just haven't been able to fill them. Um, so it, it's just been a really, um, a really interesting process to collaborate on this with you and then with all of our experts and kind of um, see what we're taking away from this. So what about you? What do you feel like you really took away from this whole collaboration? Yeah. Um, I love that when you, when you said, Hey, let's do this as a podcast. I was so excited one, because it was right at the the height of when kind of COVID was um, taking off. And I think we, all of our brains were on overload of processing information and the idea of reading or writing a guidance document felt like not where we were at as a, as a community. And so when you said podcast, it was just like a, ah, yes, this will feel good to create, to connect with people um, and really feel that relational, like you, like you spoke about that relational aspect that also comes with the more like legal aspect of this work. Um, and also, you know, I think sometimes with academia, we use such big language. And to me, I always wonder like, who are we trying to keep out of the conversation when we use academic language? And so I love the relational aspect of how a podcast can include everybody to speak and to hear. And I think that that just makes the information so much more accessible. I love it. Um, and, but for me, what I, what I really got out of this was being just more excited about collaboration and feeling like I have a need for collaboration with the people who are in my circle, um, and expanding that circle. And I think you and I are just so lucky because many of the speakers that we interviewed, we know, right. Um, and even though there's still, many of them are still rock stars, rock stars to us, they aren't untouchable. Uh, one of my low-key flexes is that I can pick up the phone and call Terry Coonan if I really need his help. <laughs> and that's something um, that I want everyone to be able to experience. Not necessarily that I'm going to pass out Terry's phone number because we've seen his bio. He is very busy. Uh, but everyone should be able to access an expert on anti-human trafficking. They should be able to connect with and build that foundation Um for survivors and for continuing this this work to end human trafficking. And I think the more people we have who are deeply connected, the more people who will join on. Um, and Adrienne Marie Brown, in one of their books, they talk about how in Hurricane Katrina um, in New Orleans, after the hurricane, there were so many trees and buildings that were crushed except for the oak trees because the oak trees' roots had entwined with each other and created this foundation that can't be rocked. They stood tall. And when I think about survivors of human trafficking, I want them to have that kind of foundation. I want them to have all of the experts combined and interlocked for them. And so that's what this kind of podcast did, was it reminded me that we are not that close, but we are not that far apart, and we need to deepen those relationships. Um, yeah, so... What are you, you know, I'm a hippie, so I'm always going to bring up trees and stuff, but what are you most excited about for this podcast? Uh, what do you, what do you really want folks to take away from it? Well, I guess I am excited to have a resource available, um, really easily accessible and hopefully enjoyable. Um, I'm excited to provide 
like you mentioned, provide access to these experts um, who are just wealths of knowledge. Um, and and that's I think I'm really excited about just honestly what we've created. I think that it turned out better than I ever could have dreamed. But I, I hope that people really um, get something out of this. I hope that it's a useful tool. And I hope that people are able to see how complex this is. I mean, we did this in, I don't know how many episodes, maybe nine, and we could have gone on forever. Um, but obviously we had to narrow it down. And even then it's kind of dense material. Like we're hoping to provide in a, you know, a really simple way, but this is, it's a complex issue. Human trafficking as a crime is a complex issue. And human trafficking victims are complex too. There's so many layers to what happens in these situations. Um, and I just hope that people realize that we can't treat human trafficking cases like any other case that we have. And we can't treat human trafficking victims like victims of other types of crime or exploitation. It's just that there's more to that. Um, my hope is that in learning all of these distinctions and nuances and what makes this so unique and complex, that legal professionals will be able to apply this knowledge when working with victims going forward. Um, and going back to what you said, I hope that when legal professionals don't know exactly how to approach a situation like this, um, which is totally expected with this level of complexity, and like we've mentioned, where we get legal training, but not necessarily this individual um, specific training. I hope that this inspires people in those situations to collaborate with the rest of the anti-trafficking community to um, make sure that victims are protected during the process and that um, cases run as smoothly as possible. So that's a lot, but um, I guess the next the next idea that we should talk about is maybe, you know, in addition to what we're hoping people get out of it, what are some unpopular or um, lesser known opinions or concepts that we're hoping that this podcast was able to touch on. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think one of the major, I don't know if it's unpopular opinion, but I feel like it is kind of, that justice is going to look different for each person. Um, and that even though we have like a good deal of resources at our disposable, we're not going to be able to always end human trafficking for somebody, you know? Uh, I think I think that was made clear throughout the episodes too, is that we can't define what success is for a survivor. We can't define what justice is for a survivor. And even sometimes if our idea of justice matches with what their idea is, it doesn't mean that they're always going to reach that, right? Or that us ending this instance of human trafficking, this instance of exploitation or harm, doesn't mean that we shake hands at the end of a court hearing or date and then they walk away and they live a, a life that's what we imagine success to be, right? Um, a lot of people are living in poverty and, and, and they go right back to living in a community with, with no resources or to a family that doesn't have uh, the same, you know, setup that is needed to support like the way they want to be able to support. And so, um, I think that we always say, you know, human trafficking can happen to everybody or anybody, which is true, but more times than not, it happens to LGBTQ folks. It happens to people of color and more specifically to black women or girls. It happens to people with disabilities, to undocumented folks. And hugely, it happens to people living in poverty. 
And I think this may be the unpopular opinion, but poverty is a design flaw that we created and that we can fix. Um, And so when I think about people saying like, end it, we need to end human trafficking. uh, We need to focus on how we do that, which is, you know, prevention and, and realizing that there are enough resources and enough capital out there for everybody to have what they need. People don't need us to save them if they have what they need to be able to take care of themselves and their own communities. And sometimes it feels like it's just this worse game of monopoly that never ends. Like we invented money and then we invented the laws that uphold or designate who is more valuable than the next person. And then we throw our hands up and we say, how are we going to fix this? (laughs) Right. And so to end human trafficking, we need to also be focused on ending mass incarceration and over-policing, which disappear a lot of times breadwinners out of community and deepens poverty. We need to talk about funding affordable housing and thriving, not just surviving wages. We need to talk about free mental health care and medical care. These are things that will make it so that somebody doesn't need someone else to take care of them. And they aren't susceptible to a trafficker who says, I'll take care of you. People need to be able to take care of themselves and their inner circle so that our work not needed, right? <laughs> um, what about you? Do you have any unpopular opinions or ideas you want to share? So I, I guess I'll hit on um, what I hope will get, what we hope this podcast touched on, and then maybe that will lead into my unpopular opinion. Um, I guess I just really hope that we, we've addressed that the work that goes into these cases, just the amount of work, the level of work. Um, obviously, as attorneys, we always have the highest duties to our clients, um, but there is generally so much more separation between work and personal relationships when it comes to other types of law or other types of cases. And I think the most important thing to take away here is that in these cases, trust is everything. And it takes a lot of work to build it and what may seem to us like nothing to break it. Um, So it's really important to build that personal relationship with victims. Um, One, to find out their needs and to work on ensuring that those needs are being taken care of. And then two, to allow these individuals who have been used and betrayed so often to be willing to help you with information, you know, that's absolutely necessary for a case, including victim testimony. Um, But I think the unpopular opinion there is that um, maybe this is a little more personal and there's a challenge in that to um, building this relationship and not letting it be another form of use. I think that it's a very fine line that these cases present that attorneys, it's I think one of the bigger challenges to these cases that attorneys have to walk this line of you know, having a victim help build a case um, and getting information that you need to help a victim moving forward without feeling like, making a victim feel like they um, are being used yet again. And so I think that um, that's the unpopular opinion, I guess, is that, um, that there is a line that could be crossed where where this becomes more of a using situation. And I think that that's just a fine line. I hope that this podcast is able to um, help people um, 
balance that line and get what you need without crossing it and making victims feel like they're being excluded yet again. Um, kind of have your answer to that question, I feel like, and not to um, make anyone uncomfortable, but speaking of heavy, heavy situations, um, Taylor, you, yeah. you have a job where you are constantly involved in heavy situations. And so I guess, well, I'll ask you the question that we ask everyone at the end of each episode of the podcast, how do you take care of yourself on heavy days? Yeah. So I think about, I can't remember who it was this, it was on TikTok. It was this Gen Z icon. I don't know who it was, but they asked her, what's your dream job? And she said, I don't dream of labor. <laughs> and I go, and I think that's part of my self-care is balancing labor and love. And when we do this work that is our passion, and we are lucky enough, honestly, to be able to have jobs and, and work that drives us, sometimes it's hard to turn it off at the end of the day. And so I think that I've, for self-care, I've learned to kind of blend my life with work a little bit better instead of separate it. And I know that's probably the opposite of what we've been told to do. But what I mean is to have flexible work hours. So when I want to work, I when I don't want to work, I don't. Um, noting that obviously I still make my hours and I still make the meetings I need to and the tasks that get done, but, but I try to make it so that I don't feel obligated to do things. Um, you know, and I think that's worked best for, for me that my mental health well, as well as to be on a flow. Like if I'm really into a guidance document, I'm not stopping at 5 p.m., but maybe that means the next day I don't start until, you know, uh, 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And I think that that flexibility has been one of the biggest self-cares for me on the heavier days. Um, and so I, I just want to note, like, transforming your labor is a big part of self-care, as much so as, like, the bubble baths and and all that type of stuff. But I also throw a blanket in my front yard and bring my laptop out and get some sun while I um, do some work. I also go to the dog park a lot. I binge watch um, the British Bake Off while I'm working sometimes and just have it in the background and those nice British people congratulating each other feels really good to me. <laughs> so yeah, I would say a lot of my self-care is very realistic things that I can do every day um, and not necessarily big grander things of like vacations or whatnot. What about you on those heavy, heavy days? How have you learned to kind of take care of yourself? Maybe I was wrong at the beginning. Maybe this is the toughest question. Um, but I think like most people who live and breathe a busy life, and I honestly think anyone in this field, most of the people listening to this podcast probably meet that criteria. Um, I think I, like all of them, could probably do better at this, at taking care of ourselves. Um, but I think my best like, cleanse from the stress that comes with any work for a fight that's worth fighting is probably family. Um, I love spending time with my husband and my dog and my husband's family who lives in town. I always call my parents, my grandparents, my brother who live out of state. Um, and I just enjoy spending time or talking or really doing anything with the people who I care about and who care about me. Um, I also you know, like you said, I love doing like yoga and gardening and taking hot baths. Um, but I feel like at the end of the day, those are more temporary fixes to just de-stress for the night and not something that 
makes you comfortable with doing all of this long term. So I, I think that they're just not as impactful compared to the benefit I get from quality time um, with people who make me happy. Kara, I just want to thank you for um, sharing all of your answers with us, sharing more about yourself and your story and your organization. Thank you for sharing all of that with us today. And thank you for sharing your time with me on this project. It has been truly such a wonderful experience getting to work with you. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly so sad this is coming to an end. I'd also like to thank all of our outstanding experts for their commitment to this issue and for their time spent enlightening us. And finally, I would like to thank each one of you listening for joining us on this journey of learning through experts. And most importantly, thank you for being interested in and willing to put in the work it takes to learn more about human trafficking victim advocacy. It's my hope for all of us that we continue to learn and grow and truly create positive change in this space. So for one last time, stay well and thanks for listening.